where we're going to start this morning. I think that my coat is creating static that's making that noise. You guys hear that? So I'm going to take my coat off. Is that cool? All right. I am not going to take my shirt off, no matter what happens. That might get a little awkward, amen? I think there's some distractions because I believe this is going to be a really important sermon in the life of our church. This series is a series that I've waited two years to to teach you, and I'm so excited about it. We've talked a lot about the things, the themes that I'm going to talk about in today's message, so that part of it's not new, but exactly what I'm going to tell you over the next four weeks, starting last week and going through July, are really, really critical. And so um, if you're a guest with us here today, um, you may feel a little bit like you're listening in on... Do not touch it. Okay, I got it. You may feel very much like... Are we getting a new one? Testing, one, two. And he's walking away with the one that works. Okay. Blue mic. Or am I on? I'm on. Hey, forget the blue mic. I'll put it with my jacket. This is fun. All right. Are you guys ready? Let's do this. Have you ever noticed a connection between owning a lot of something and valuing it less? Have you ever noticed that connection? I first remember noticing the connection when we got a Sam's Club membership, like Costco to to us up here, right? Where you got a lot of something and all of a sudden you could just, you know, thousand cheese balls. I can eat all the cheese balls I want. I didn't value it the same way. You know, when you, the more you have of something, the, the less frugal you are with what you have. And that can be a good thing. Sometimes it can be a bad thing. Sometimes the more access you have to something, the more you take it for granted. How many guys have ever felt that way? Maybe you felt that way when you noticed when somebody moved away, right? You had the chance to, maybe it's a family member or a loved one, and you had years of being able to see them all the time and connect with them all the time. And maybe you've realized after they left, man, I missed them and I didn't take advantage of the time that I had because you had access to it. You valued it less, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. From time to time on television or on the internet, I've come across a video capturing a, a, a crisis moment in somebody's life. Some, a lot of times it's closed circuit video and they'll see somebody that gets mugged or gets hurt or they fall, they get hit by a car or something like that. And in these big cities, there's so many people that people will see it happen and maybe they just walk by them and don't even help. Have you seen videos like that? Anybody like seen that? Um, Maybe even worse, you've seen people instead of helping the guy, they're taking video of it. You've seen those kind of scenarios. And 
in recent years, you've seen that happening. We've also probably been, if you've lived in a county like we do, I know my grandparents lived in Brown County, Texas, Brownwood, Texas, Lake Brownwood. We would go, I lived there when I was little, and I would go back as a teenager. I was living in St. Pete, Florida, the most populated, in the most populated county per square mile in Florida. But then I would go in the summers to Brown County, Texas, where there's the, what separates the houses in my grandparents' neighborhood is miles, right? And we would go down the lake road going into town because that was an event when you go into town living there. And almost every car that drove by, this is the Texas wave. <laughs> when you pass by somebody, everybody waved at each other. And I'd be like, Papa, you know that guy? He goes, I've seen him before. I don't know who he is. I'm like, and I'm, I'm from Florida where there's people everywhere and everybody's so friendly. Everybody waves at each other. And I think in some ways, that's because where there's less people, people are valued more. Where there's more people, people can be valued less. Do you guys see it? It's not a universal principle, but it tends to be the case. In our culture, we have potential connection to other people, more potential connection to other people than at any time in history. Do you see that? If you want to get a hold of, me, hold of me, you can call me, you can text me, you can Facebook messenger me, you can get me on several social media things. You can, we have a fax machine still. You could fax me, you could call the church office, you could leave a voicemail. On my, Are you with me? There's a lot of connection. You guys have that too? We have so much of it. Whether we're in the live in the middle of a metropolitan city or in the most remote and rural part of our nation, we have more access to more people than ever before. And as a culture, I believe it means, I believe that there is a tendency to value people less and less and less. And what I want you to know today, before I start any proposition in this sermon, is to tell you this, people matter to God. People matter to God. You matter to God. There are some that teach a horrible theology that God only cares for some. And I want to teach you that God cares for everybody. God loves everybody. People matter to God. God made people in his image. He is no respecter of persons. The Bible says that he looks, that man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart, that he looks on the inside. Big, little, old, young, fat, skinny, American, European, Asian, African, put any human distinction you want on the table, it doesn't matter and it doesn't change this fact. People matter to God. And because people matter to God, those who are called by his name Christians, people should matter to us too. Do you agree with that? But that's not the only thing that matters to God. Truth matters to God. Truth should matter to us as well. In John 1.14, it says this. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. And the word was made flesh... The word here is talking about Jesus. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, 
the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. This is John writing, and he says, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus in the coming chapters, but what I want you to know is this word, this logos, this eternal this eternal one, Jesus, who became, God became flesh. He lived among us and we saw his glory. They were up on the, trans, the Mount of Transfiguration and God's, Jesus' glory was pulled back and they saw him um, as a human, but also in his, in his divinity. He was as the only begotten of the Father. But then it says this, full of grace and truth. What was notable about Jesus according to this verse was that Jesus was not only love and grace, he was truth. It was the combination that was so powerful. Do you get it? He loved people, but he also was, so, was committed to the truth. Holiness and love, justice and mercy, he was the combination. There are only two things that are gonna get out of this time this world, in eternity, only two things are going to make out of it. You're saying, what do you see? Like, the Bible, which predicted all kinds of prophecies that, are, that have come true already, all kinds of, like, you need, if you haven't read your Bible, you need to understand that this book has an incredible track record of saying these things are going to happen in the future, and they have. Okay? Like, it hasn't ever missed. But there's more coming. And what it says is coming is one day, everything on this planet is going to melt. And God's going to bring on a new heaven and a new earth. That's what this Bible says. Are you with me? It's got a great track record. And the only two things, look around at everything. This building is not going to make it. The technology, everything is not going to make it. Two things are going to make it. The word of God and people. That's it. The word of God and the souls of men. Everyone is going to live forever somewhere. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. Do you get it? And so, interestingly, the target of the ministry of the local church that was outlined by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the people of God be equipped to do ministry the way Jesus did, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4 teaches, I'm not going to teach it all today, but Ephesians 4 says, this is the goal of the church. Leaders equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And what that work of the ministry, as it matures, looks like is speaking the truth to each other and to the world with this motivation, love. You can't love people in light of them. But you can hurt people with the truth. Anybody ever seen that happen? So effective ministry looks like speaking the truth in love. Do you get it? Speaking the truth in love. And so here is a great description of the mission of our church. It is my goal in this sermon and with the coming sermons here in the month of July to describe the mission of our church. And not only its mission, but what our strategy is. How are we going to accomplish the mission? Hey, who agrees? If God gave us a mission, we want to do it. 
And if God gave us a mission, we want to do it faithfully, obediently. We want to do it successfully. Who, let's just take a straw poll. Who wants that? Okay, almost everybody in here. That's awesome. Okay, so today I'm going to describe what the mission is. And then in the coming weeks, I'm going to say, here's our strategy to accomplish it. Okay. Of course we exist to glorify God. But what does our church exist to do? How do we glorify God? What are we supposed to do? How do, how do we do that as a part of this church? Our church exists to glorify God by accomplishing the mission that we've been given. The mission that God gave us is called the Great Commission. How many of you guys have ever heard that term, the Great Commission? Raise your hands. Okay, that's awesome. I'm going to help you understand it and define it today. The mission is our Great Commission, and it is our co-mission vision. And today's message really is an argument for the theology and philosophy of our mission. And so, here's the big idea. Ready? We must accomplish the mission that God has given to us called the Great Commission. We got to do it. There's no option. I don't have an option as your pastor to say, hey, here's a different mission. Because this mission wasn't something that I came up with. This was something that was stewarded to any local church. Jesus gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to us, as you will see. This has been the mission of Brother Gene Milioni and Dave Schaefer and Mike Spann. And this stewardship has been handed to me as your pastor. But we're not the only people that do this mission. If we are, we're in trouble. Who agrees? This is for everybody. It's for everybody who calls on the name of Christ and who, is, who knows Christ as Savior. So we have to accomplish this mission. How are we going to do that? We're more likely to do that when we can answer these five questions. Here's question number one. Really simply, ready? Number one, what is the Great Commission? What is the Great Commission? Webster's Dictionary defines uh, the noun commission this way. It's a formal written warrant granting the power to perform various acts or duties. It's a certificate conferring military rank or authority. It's an authorization or command to act in a prescribed manner or to perform prescribed acts. It's, a, it's authority to act for in behalf of or in place of another. If then a commission is the authorization and a command for a group of people or persons to perform some duty, what is the great commission? Here it is. A, it's a mission statement for every local church. The Great Commission is the mission statement of every local New Testament assembly, New Testament church. Jesus spent three years in his earthly ministry reaching people, teaching people, and ministering to people. And while he did this ministry himself, Jesus was, all, Jesus was incredible at ministry, by the way. You guys know that. Not only did he teach better than everybody else, he ministered better than everybody else. He always did it the right way. And, and when he was doing this ministry, he had guys that he called with him. There were the 12 disciples. He called them to do life with them, and he poured his life into them. While he was doing ministry, he had them with him. And at the end of his earthly ministry, after Jesus did all the ministry, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead after his resurrection— he authorized these men and the other disciples that he had trained to make disciples like he had. 
Assemblies of Jesus Christ, what we call churches, were the fruit of that ministry. They assembled people who had been reached and were being discipled in the context of that ministry. This is the mission of the church today, to make disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations. That's the ministry that is given to every local church. So what's the, what is the Great Commission? It's to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. You guys are not excited. That's the Great Commission. Okay, what is the Great Commission? It's a statement of orders from our supreme commander to the officers in the field. Who agrees Jesus is in charge? God's in charge. And this is, this is like his, as he leaves, this is what he told them to do. The mission was God's mission. He handed his mission to his son, Jesus, and then Jesus at the end of his ministry handed that mission to his disciples who handed it to others, who handed it to others, and that's how we got here. Are you with me? That's what he commanded us to do. The Bible speaks about the spiritual battle that's waging. We're in the battles, we're in the battle for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And so our marching orders are summed up in the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? It's also not just our mission statement, not just our orders from Jesus. It's also a statement of principles, a statement of principles. I want you to listen to this. I have two kind of long quotes from a pastor that I revere a lot. His name is Dr. Bill Monroe. This is what he says about the, the Great Commission being a statement of principles. He says, a principle is defined as a fundamental truth, law, or doctrine upon which others are based an essential element that produces a specific effect. Okay, you're going to have to think with me on this. That is why the Lord gave the commission. What did he do? To produce a specific effect. Jesus wants something to happen in our church. He wants something to happen in this place. God has a will for Trinity Baptist Church. He has a specific effect that he wants to have happen. I sense many today may be thinking, how could the commission be relevant in today's ever-changing high-tech culture? Isn't the Great Commission sort of a tired, old-fashioned formula? Allow me to answer that question with one I've already posed. Would Jesus have given us a strategy that he knew would become irrelevant and ineffective before the task was completed? Would he have done that? Of course not. The answer is self-evident. The very nature of the Lord Jesus himself would not permit that. So think of the Great Commission as a set of unchanging principles universally applicable to local churches. These principles are based upon truth, for our Lord spoke them. Principles which, if we would but apply, could still enable us to consummate the Great Commission, perhaps even in this generation. Do you get it? It's a statement of principles. But here's a really clear thing. It's also a process. The Great Commission is a process. Are you with me? We're going to see in the scripture again that this is a process. Again, Brother Monroe, Dr. Monroe says this. A process is a series of events. I'm going to say this again. A series of events strategically arranged in order to systematically reach a certain objective. Do you get it? That's what a process is. The Great Commission is a process. That is, a series of events strategically arranged in order to systematically reach a certain objective. What's our objective? 
Hope you're going to see it the rest of the sermon. Let me give it to you. Our objective is to reach every available person with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we want people to be saved? Do we want people to hear the gospel? We do. But that's not where it ends. We want to baptize them, everybody who receives them. We want to equip them to become obedient, productive members of our local church who will themselves join in the mission. To achieve this objective requires a definite process, a series of events strategically arranged in order to systematically reach a certain objective. We will never effectively reach our objective with a calendar full of random activities. We cannot just meet together, preach, pray, and hope for results. Effort and activity do not count no matter how sincerely given. There must be a process, a series of events strategically arranged to reach our objective. The process must be carried out in a disciplined and consistent manner. Just as a general produces a war plan based upon a local conditions, so must we develop a process and a strategy based upon the local spiritual terrain. It's far easier to have projects and uh, programs than it is to have a process. A project is an evangelistic campaign, a rally, an event, a special day, a promotion. A project has a start time and a finish date. The Great Commission is not a project. It is not a program. The Great Commission is not a program. It's a 365-day-a-year process. The process involves a three-phase cycle. The first is to go and make disciples or evangelism. The second is the churching phase where the comfort is baptized and assimilated or connected to the church. The third phase is the equipping stage where the believer is trained to know and be obedient to the teachings of Jesus Christ and to become involved in the mission themselves. Only when that cycle has been completed can we really say that we fulfilled the great commission, end quote. So do you get it? It's a process. It's a statement of principles. It's the orders from our supreme commander. This is what the Great Commission is. Here's a second question. Are you ready? Question number two. Why is it stated in five different places in Scripture? Why is the Great Commission given in five different places? How many guys noticed that when we had the Scripture that Dave Curtis was reading today, that they had like five different images? Who noticed that when we did that? Okay, if you go out into our hallway, those images are the posters on our walls. Okay, and we put those up a few months ago. We didn't announce it. We just put them up there. They're the five Great Commission passages in the New Testament. Okay, why do I put them up on the walls? Because I want you to see them. They're our purpose. They're our values. We don't reword them. We just put them up. This is what we're supposed to do. Why, why are they in five different places? Well, let me just tell you this. Jesus didn't say it just one time. Jesus said it multiple times. It was repeated. In fact, not only was it something he said, it was something that he did. It was his method. Well, the commissioning phase of his ministry was at the end. You know, Jesus discipled his guys. He taught them. He trained them. He did ministry in front of them. Then he gave them ministry. Then they watched him do it. He, he told them, he sent them out before he ever finally sent them out. He was sending them the whole time. Are you with me? And at the end, he commissioned them. He didn't just wait to, in the end to tell them that's what he was doing. He said it a bunch. 
He would do ministry while they watched him. Then he would do ministry with them. Then he would watch them do ministry and coach them. And finally, he would send them out and he would cheer them on. These expressions of commission solidified the principles and methods and mission he had already been doing with them. So he, why is it repeated so many times? Because he didn't just say it one time. He didn't want his followers to forget it or forsake it. He wanted them to do it together. Have you noticed the name of our, of our series? Our Commission Vision. Our Co-Mission Vision. This isn't just for one person. This is for, point to who it's for. It's for everybody. It's for our whole church. Why is it stated in five different places? Well, Jesus did not just say it one way. He said it many ways. In fact, Jesus gave us a cohesive picture of our mission in these five texts. And here's really the, the, the guts of our message that I want to give to you today. Leads us to lesson, uh, question number three. What are the five different emphases in those five texts? Jesus said it multiple times. It's recorded five times in scripture. What when we put them all together, we're going to get a pretty cohesive uh, statement about it. Are you ready? So what are the five places and how does it apply to us? Well, first, we're going to see Matthew 18, 28, 18 through 20. This commission, is called, this, this commission shows us that the Great Commission is a process. Look at what it says. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, before I read that, go back. I'm going to go to the passage myself in my, in the, in my Bible. Look at what it says, Matthew uh, 28. Go to verse number 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Jesus had told, Hey, go to Galilee, go to this mountain. I'm going to, I'm going to meet you there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some... What does it say? Doubt it. Now, some have said, maybe even thought, what are they doubting here? Are they doubting, are they doubting that Jesus is God? Is that what they're doubting? I don't think that they doubted that at all. We're going to see in just a few minutes that he had spent from his resurrection till, till what's about to happen, his ascension here. He spent all that time doing a basically a Bible. First of all, he's appearing to them. They had seen him die. They saw the empty tomb. They saw him alive. And then he did this, basically a Bible study going through all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, showing that all the scriptures pointed to him and how he fulfilled all of them. So they knew that he was God. That was not what was questioned. What were they doubting? What they also had experienced from Jesus is that he kept saying, I'm going to go away. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And I think they were worried because the last time he died and was gone for three days. They had all abandoned him. Peter was probably the most notable leader. He had denied Jesus. Thomas even doubted that he had risen from the dead until Jesus showed up and showed him, who's with me? So they kept, Jesus kept saying, I'm going, I'm leaving. And I think they were doubting, what were they doubting? They weren't doubting if Jesus was God. They were doubting, what are we gonna do now that Jesus is gone? Jesus had said, you're gonna do greater things than I did. And they're going, how are we? going to do greater things than Jesus did. That makes no sense. Well, I think these five passages will help you understand how they're going to end up doing greater things. 
He says they doubted. And Jesus, and when he knows what's going on in their hearts, this is what he says to them. Jesus came and spake to them saying, all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore. What's the therefore based on? Go out under my authority. You know what you're authorized to do? By Jesus, you're authorized by Jesus to make disciples. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, God has authorized you to make disciples. Let me ask you a question. Are you making disciples? Are you making disciples? I'm going to show you how, over the next few weeks how we can do it together. He says here, go ye therefore and teach. The word there for teach there is mathetusate. It literally means make disciples. Make students of, make followers of, make disciples of. Who are, you, who are they supposed to make disciples of? Dave Fawcett. Who are they supposed to make disciples of? All the nations, but who are they following? Jesus. Make disciples of Jesus among all the nations. What does it say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them two words. What does it say? To observe or to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And here's the good news. And lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the world. Do you see the process? The process is help people believe in Jesus. Help people profess Jesus once they believe in baptism, following that obedient stage, following that obedient act. And then teach them to obey. Don't just teach them to know. Teach them to obey everything I taught you to obey. Are you with me? And by the way, even though I'm going, I'm still going to go with you even till the end of the age. Isn't that cool? So it's not just winning people to Jesus and not just helping them get baptized. It's helping them learn how to be obedient to Christ, how to follow all that Christ commanded us. Has he given us a lot here? He has. So there's a process. We reach them, we teach them, we send them out to minister. That's what we do. That's the Great Commission in Matthew 8, 20, 18. It's a process. The Great Commission in Mark 16, 15, carries a message. It says in Mark 16, 15, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the, what's the word? What's the word? Gospel to every creature. What does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. What is the good news? That Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The message must be given to every person in all of the world. First Corinthians, if you have your Bibles, quickly go to First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. Here's a definition of the gospel. So clear, right? Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. How are we, what does the gospel do? It helps us be saved. 
if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed it in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. What is Paul saying? This isn't new to me. This isn't original to me. This is what I received from Jesus, and this is what all of the other apostles are believing. What is it? How that Christ died. Who's Christ? Jesus, the only begotten. He's the Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah. That Jesus, that God became flesh, and that he died why did he die? He died for our sins. How do we know that it was for our sins? Because he said it would be, and because that's exactly what the scripture said would happen. According to the scriptures means God predicted it would happen. Jesus came. He died. When he died, he died for our sins. He died according to the scriptures. It was predicted. Verse four, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And after that, he was seen of Cephas, talking about Peter, then of the 12. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remaineth unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. The Bible itself defines what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. How do we know that God accepted Christ? Uh, sin, his atonement for sin, his offering for sin on the cross because he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Are you guys excited about the gospel? Like this is our hope. And, and so where the great commission is a process, it's, all, it's, it's energized. It's not just some process like training, like, you know, we're, we're like Amway or some corporation that's trying to get people to do things. This is a supernatural, life-giving, life-altering message by which we are made alive in Christ and how we get to heaven and have every spiritual blessing get, get placed into Christ. This is our only hope. And this gospel has got to get to everybody. To everybody. To everybody. Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So what's the command? To get the gospel to all nations. And that's why it has to be our commission vision because I can't by myself get the gospel to all nations. Not by myself. You can't do it by yourself. It's as much your responsibility as it is mine. Who's thankful for the gospel? Too much is given, much is required. And so it's a message. It's the good news. The Great Commission carries a message. The Great Commission is about the person of Jesus Christ. Luke twenty two twenty four says this. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. This, this passage in Luke 26, again, is after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, he's he's appearing to these disciples. He's training, one last training before I go. And he says, this is what I told you about, how that Moses spoke about me and the law spoke about me and the psalm spoke about me, that I was coming. Verse 45, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. The gospel is all about Jesus. What did the scriptures say? Verse 46, and he said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in, in whose name? 
who agrees this is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That remission and repentance of sins be given in his name, preached in his name. Where? Among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye, he said to the disciples, you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of, the, of my Father upon you. What was that promise? The indwelling Holy Spirit. But you tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The message of the gospel and the commission of Christ is to make disciples not of ourselves. I'm not trying to make disciples of Ben Jennings. Jesus said, follow me, Paul and us. What we say is follow me as I follow Christ. We're trying to make disciples of Jesus. This great commission, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. In John, we see the great commission is delegated authority. Is delegated authority. Look at this. Then said Jesus to them again, this is him showing up. Peace be unto you as my father hath sent me, what does he say? So send I you. The Father has a mission. God the Father has a mission. The great commission that we're on, it's a co-mission because we're doing God's mission in the world. Do you get it? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For this reason, he sent Jesus. Jesus constantly said that he came to do his Father's will. In this commission, he stated that he had come with the Father's authority. He was now handing over authority to the disciples to make disciples of Jesus. This is similar to what he said in Matthew 28. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. So here's the deal. Ready? The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit to us. And he sent us into the world with that spirit. So you don't do this thing alone. That's why he said, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the world. He says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now, let me be clear about something that impacts our church. Every Sunday at the end, as we're about to leave, I say, you're not dismissed you're sent. What I'm trying to say when I say that, let me be really clear. I want you to get this. What I'm trying to say is that the ministry has not just been accomplished only to be done again in this building at the next service or the next Lord's Day. What I'm saying is that the point of this gathering is for you to be further equipped to go out into the world to do ministry all week long. Do you get it? The ministry's not over when the service is over. And it's not only done by professionals. The ministry is to be done outside of this building by every Christ follower who's been given the authority to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And you're not going out under my authority. I'm not saying I'm sending you. No, I'm saying you are sent, not by Pastor Ben. Who are we sent? Point to who we're sent by. That's it. We are not dismissed. This is not just, okay, now it's time to go get lunch. Although we, go get lunch. It's great. Right? 
What are we? We're sent by Jesus. And by the way, you're not, I'm not saying you're sent by me. You're not going out under my authority. We're going out under the authority of the resurrected Jesus who gave it to us as he received it from the Father and who has empowered us with his Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is a delegated authority. Last thing in this part. The Great Commission is to be done locally, regionally, and globally. In Acts 1, this is how Jesus said it. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Where should the Great Commission be done? Of course it's done internationally. We get to support some 130 missionaries all over the world. Who thinks that's awesome? And, and the missionaries we, we support, are, we, we try very uh, diligently to make sure that those missionaries are gospel preaching, church planting missionaries are missionaries that support that effort. In our church context, we emphasize the gospel getting to the nations. We're praying that the Lord would see fit that someone would be sent from our church to a cross-cultural international ministry somewhere in the world. Jesus commanded that the commission be done in the uttermost. Who agrees with that? But it also, he also said it's done in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. For the disciples, Jerusalem was where they were. Judea was surrounding the surrounding area where, they were, where there were people who were culturally homogeneous. They were the same. Samaria was near them geographically, but it was cross-cultural ministry. They, they were nearby, but they were a different culture. We have that happening too, don't we? Of course, the uttermost part of the earth was the expanse, expanses of geography and completely cross-cultural in language and religion and culture. But notice something very important about that verse. He says, you're going to receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you'll be my witness both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. It's not. You have an option. You can either do it here or here or here or here. What does he say? Where's it supposed to happen? Everywhere. It's everywhere. The Great Commission, making disciples, evangelism, discipleship, sending, is not just for missionaries in foreign lands and not just for churches here at home, uh, uh, nor is it just for churches here at home with no effect to the nations. So how can we do Great Commission in all those places at the same time? The, the truth of the matter is, I can't and you can't, but... We, we can. It's our co-mission vision. So let's put it all together. What did we just say? We said that the Great Commission is a process. That it includes, that, that we, we reach people, we baptize them, we train them, we send them out to do the ministry which is to go reach people, teach people, send them out to do ministry. It's a process. Who agrees it's a process? That it contains, it's empowered by this message, the message of the gospel, that it's about Jesus, 
that it's, that it's um, about doing it locally, but it's also about doing it regionally and globally. How did, here's question number four, are you ready? How did the disciples and the early church flesh out this great commission? How did they do it? If you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm giving you a lot today. In Acts chapter 2, at the very beginning, the disciples, there's 120 of them, 12, actually 11, and then they had added a 12th because Judas had gone. There's 120 of them in the upper room. They get filled with the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised would come, came down and filled into them and dwelt them. Amazing things were happening. It became pretty evident they got out of that upper room and they were probably in the temple as, as, as they were being indwelled and doing all these sign things. They started speaking and as they were speaking, um, they, were, they were speaking and everybody that was there internationally heard it in their own language. So as they were speaking, people, in fact, if you go and look at verse number nine, it starts describing, it says verse eight, how, how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia. Verse 10, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. Verse 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? So the disciples are indwelled by the Spirit. They're speaking and as they're speaking, everybody's hearing in their own language. This is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel, where, where God confused their languages because they were trying to get to God in their own way. God provided a way, and now he's unifying the languages as a sign to Israel to say, I'm doing something new, but I'm doing something that I predicted. What did they contribute? What did they say? Verse 12, they're all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new, new wine. These guys are drunk. It's a dumb. Anybody ever get drunk and do something miraculous? I probably didn't. Have, don't raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> we won't take volunteers on that. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, Judea and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it be but the third hour of the day. It's noon. We're not drunk. This isn't five o'clock somewhere kind of thing, right? We're not drunk. But this is which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit Upon all flesh. The, the prophet Joel is in the Old Testament. He's quoting here. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He goes on in verse 22, and this is what he says. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Now that's an interesting message. We're not drunk. You guys blew it. This power that you're seeing exhibited in us isn't because we're great. 
This is exactly what God said would happen. That in the latter days, God would pour out his spirit to declare a message. And this is the message. Jesus, the one you crucified, God raised from the dead. He goes on and says, this is what David said in the Psalms. He quotes a bunch of things. And he preaches this incredible, incredible sermon. And by the way, this is crazy. Just a few weeks later, what was Jesus doing at the fire? Well, sorry, what was Peter doing at the father at the fire? Time. Aren't you one of his disciples? I don't even know him. He denied him three times. What was the difference? Jesus rose again, and he restored him. And so his message now: Peter's standing up, and he says, "This one you crucified, God raised from the dead." He he declares unto them all these amazing things. Verse 37, when we heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Verse down, go down to verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. They asked him, back to verse 38. What did they ask him in verse 37? Sorry, verse 37. Said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? He's like, what do you think we should do? Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the same spirit, the gift of the Holy Ghost that we've received. They asked him, what should we do? He said, here's what he said. You need to believe and you need to be baptized. What was he saying? Become a disciple of Jesus. What had Jesus just told the disciples to do? Go make disciples of all nations. The baptism didn't make them saved. The repentance made them saved. The baptism, the baptism identified them publicly with Jesus. Look at what happens. Now this is what's so, why, why am I telling you all this? Look at verse number 41. Here's what it says. Then they that gladly received his word, who were they? Those who heard it, repented, believed, what does it say? They were baptized. And the same day, they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What was that part? Who agrees they were reached? Were these people reached? They got saved. They got baptized, and baptism is what added them to the local church. And then it was over. Is that what it says? Look at the next verse. <laughs> it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get their doctrine? From Jesus. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together. That's the church, right? And had all things in common. They sold their possessions and good, and parted them to, every, to all men, every man as a need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, large group, small group, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, how often? Daily. 
Did it just happen on Sunday when they gathered? It happened every day. Daily, such as should be saved. Who wants people getting saved around here daily? How did it happen? Before they had programs. Before they had buildings. Before they had worship bands and choirs. Before they had anything. They had doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread. They had prayer. They did evangelism. They made disciples. And here's what, how many people got saved. It says, what did it say? As many as received his word were baptized and the same day was added to them 3,000 souls. I ask you this question. If we had a move of the Spirit here on a Sunday where 400 people got saved, what would we do with those people? Keep coming. (laughs) Would we need more services? Yeah, we would. I want to submit to you what will we want for those people to ha- what will we want to happen? We want them to get baptized and we want to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. Who agrees I can tell somebody, hey, you should be in your Bible every day. You should do that. Here, new convert, master this. Ready? Good luck. Hope you enjoy it. Read John. John's a good one. Is that what we should do? How could 3,000 people, give me my Bible back. (laughs) How could 3,000 people continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers? It's because Jesus had equipped 120 people in his ministry, and he had poured his life into 12, and he had poured his life into three, and I believe the three helped the 12 who helped the 120 so that when 3,000 people got saved, there were people there that could help them and not just say, you should read your Bible, but said, hey, let's do this thing together. Let me teach you to pray. Let me teach you how to be in God's word. Let me tell you, let me teach you that you got saved and you're going to, but you're going to sin again and you're going to have doubts. Let me help you with those doubts. Are you with me? I don't want to have spiritual babies and then leave them and hope that they can fend for themselves. And although that might seem like a slow process, the multiplication possibilities are unbelievable when we actually help the people that get saved know how to follow God themselves and then generationally learn how to help others do the same thing. And by the way, that's what the Great Commission tells us to do. Not just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get saved, and you're golden, keep coming, right? But to help them come to know Christ, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe all things I've commanded you, which ends up in 
you're not dismissed, you're sent. What would a church look like that was prepared for that? Maybe the reason we don't have 20 and 50 and 75 and 100 people getting saved is because we're not ready for them. But what if we could be? What if we could be? More on that next week. What's our mission? It's the Great Commission. It's a process that carries a message. It's about the person of Jesus. It's to be done locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And it can't be done just by one of us. It's our co-mission vision. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?